Welcome back to Sports and Society. We've got a bit of a, a different uh, time here today. We're on a Monday evening of all things, but how are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing well because I don't have a job or children, so I have plenty of energy. Um, <laughs> you any bread baking today? <laughs> I did not, but McKay made some phenomenal sourdough bagels last night, and I did eat one of those I today. I wanted the recipe. So. Yeah. It is really, really good. I have kind you? of a, a, a slow, low-key, long-term uh, desire to figure out bagel baking. So, Yeah, um, she would be a good one to ask now because she, they were exceptional. All right. Yeah. Um, what are you paying attention to in the sports world? So um, the biggest thing this week is Sports Illustrated, the uh, – Perhaps most important um, sports uh, news, sports media voice of the 20th century is essentially uh, falling apart as we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were uh, purchased by a new organization from Time. I think we talked about this on our discussion of them uh, last year, but a lot has happened since we talked that they have a new group that is kind of running and managing the magazine um, called the Maven. Um, This is a group that has essentially never had a high uh, profile magazine that it's run before, but was contracted by the owners to run it. Uh, And by all accounts has just done a horrible job of doing so. Um, they came in and laid off like uh, 30 or 40 folks, 30 or 40%, I think, excuse me, of the workforce. Uh, and then followed that up with, hey, we're going to be hiring a bunch soon. So tell all your friends, we're going to be like an SB Nation and we're going to create all these sites that are like Sports Illustrated light sites for all these different places. Uh, in the meantime, that turned into a disaster because they hired a bunch of folks that didn't know what the heck they were talking about, including at least two high school students to write for them. Um, and so the staff was apparently up in arms and like, we don't know what is happening. Meanwhile, the CEO of Maven does all this stuff about how it was poorly mismanaged. They're like everything. Of course, everybody's miserable because they're having to make changes because it was not a sustainable model and yada, yada, yada. Well, now uh, that's been going on for a while. And about two weeks ago, they fired, um, the biggest NBA name that they have, which is one of the most respected NBA writers in the world that they just let go. Uh, and then this weekend it all really hit the fan because they let go Grant wall, um, who is probably the most important, um, American soccer journalists, uh, ever. Uh, I think we could safely say, uh, kind yeah. of is responsible for what soccer is in the U S at this point. Um, and it got really ugly because they released this memo to the rest of the staff uh, releasing how much he was paid last year and saying that they had to fire him without severance because he refused to take a pay cut. Uh, he has since come out and said that that's not the case. Uh, they also said ugly things like he doesn't write and none of his content gets clicks uh, and stuff like that. And so it has just been... Uh, a horrible look for Sports Illustrated because Grant Wall is, from everything I've read, one of the most respected uh, folks out there. All these folks have come out on Twitter and talk about how much time he took to build up young journalists and everything. And it's just, in my mind, really sad to see this thing that I loved growing up just completely fall apart. Yeah. It is, and I haven't been following this story directly, but 
I think my angle on it has been paying attention to what some of the writers I really like are saying and every single voice that I have come across that is commenting on what's happening at Sports Illustrated has been absolutely accosted by what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so that gives the impression that this is, I you, you know, because I, I, I think there's space for change in Sports Illustrated. Mm, for sure. Right, and there's space for meeting new demands in a new media landscape, and there is definitely space for new voices. Um, I mean, for decades, Sports Illustrated has uh, towed the line of what's going to work best and be right down the middle of everything. Mm -hmm. So, in that way, like you know, there there is space for critiquing Sports Illustrated itself. Um, Taking on the writers in such a mismanaged way, I feel, is like what the people I respect have been articulating. Uh, and so it's that mismanagement piece, which, again, I don't know anything about this company that is buying them. And I haven't done any research into it, but uh, it pulls me back to our conversation on Deadspin. And when you talk about when money people buy these sports media outlets, what happens and how devalued complex, um, you know, uh, deep sports journalism doesn't segue into a bottom line that investors are really interested in. And so that raises a really interesting question too. Well, it does. And it's, uh, it'll be fascinating to follow because I think um, uh, they, so the guy that runs it, the CEO apparently uh, had another sports media company that he ran under before he did this, um, which is interesting. Apparently, because of course there are a bunch of journalists that he's screwing over now, so they're all going to go digging into what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's also questions about the SEC filings that they have put forward, that how much cash that they have to actually keep all of this afloat. Um, and it just seems horribly mismanaged. Uh, mm -hmm. And the fact to go public uh, with the firing with a personnel decision. In this way, is just speaks like w whether or not it's true. It's just something as a professional organization, you cannot do those things. Right, right. And let's be clear: Grant Wall is going to be fine. The Athletic is going to swoop him up, and he's going to be just fine. He'll I'm, probably come out better. Yeah, uh, <laughs> probably so. And I would imagine, in many ways, like I, I this is just an assumption, but that the that this is taking place is probably evidence that things were not great in Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at what the site is now and what it was when we were kids, when we were receiving Sports Illustrated kids and getting the magazine, um, it, it, it even to us now has felt nothing like it used to be and what it was, um, the institution-like space it held. Is well, no longer. Yeah, and I think that um, that institutional knowledge is a great point because one of the things that's come out of this is that there's currently apparently an investigation ongoing about some sexual harassment type activity because one of the executives uh, wanted to reward a writer for doing something, was trying to get them to do something. And so they said, hey, if you do a good job on this, we'll take you to the swimsuit uh, issue shoot and you'll get to see all that stuff. Wow. Um, and like all the writers like, Hey man, like there's been a long standing separation between what that is and what we are. You need to back yeah. off of that. Good grief. 
So <laughs> what a joke. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Well, it speaks to the kind of person like who who thinks of that as a reward to go not like be involved in any way, just go there to hang out with beautiful people is apparently, you know, that's you have to be a pretty sketchy person to be like that's what I'm going to reward you with on this. And yeah. <laughs> It's so despicable. It's hard to really yeah. kind of come to a place of an understanding on it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but it was all fascinating too in the language of like they're trying to drop pay, which every major sports league and entity is trying to drop pay. I'm shocked that we haven't heard about this from ESPN. I know they're doing it. Um, mm-hmm. We just haven't heard about it yet. But they try to do across the board cuts. Um, but apparently. At Sports Illustrated, they tried to make it permanent, and that's what Grant Wall refused. He was he was willing to take a thirty percent temporary cut, but was not willing to make it a permanent cut. Right. Um, which is, uh, I, I gotta hand it to you, it's pretty ballsy to try and yeah. to use this crisis to to manipulate salaries in that way, but also pretty pretty uh, stiff upper lip to to say no, I'm not going to let you use me in that way. At the same time, right, right. Yeah, and also just the the capital that he has in his pocket, knowing mm-hmm. that I'm sure he's gotten a lot of offers over the last 10 years. Well, it was fascinating as well, because I happened to go on his Twitter to look at what he was saying about it and come to find out that his wife is one of the most esteemed epidemiologists in the country. And so she's going on all this stuff. And so it's like, all right, so you're already like your uh, your family is at the top right now. So you're you're doing all right. You're fine. Yeah, precisely. So anyway, but yeah. Uh, that's my diatribe for the day. I apologize to folks, but um, <laughs> what's particularly frustrating to me is that on some level, I feel like they could win um, because I think there's a world in which they get the same number of clicks because they can work the system better uh, and they make more money off of it, even though they're not producing anything of value at that point. Precisely. I think that's what, is so disheartening is that's no surprise to anyone Mm -mm. it's like of course you could take the name sports illustrated and turn it into clickbait like everyone of course there's no doubt about that uh what is interesting and what is significant is that it's taking away a voice for some of the most in-depth and thoughtful journalism Mm -hmm. that has added to what you and I believe in about a way to talk about sports that is outside uh, clickbait. Anyway, what have you been paying attention to? Uh, a couple things. Real, I'll, I'll try and just kind of breeze through them quickly. Uh, did you watch any of the horse tournament? <laughs> I have not. Uh, it's as boring as I thought it was going to be. However, it also is kind of feel good. Um, hmm. for that, that would be my hot take on it. Of uh, it, it, it's kind of fun just to see him try and do something different. It also is really awkward, uh, as you would imagine it to be. Um, nonetheless, it, it, it's pretty boring as far as sports as entertainment goes. It has cultural value, I think, if we were to like project ourselves into the future and look hmm. back at it. But in the immediate, it's maybe not all that interesting. Uh, I also 
watched a documentary on the 1947 Ashes match. Um, <laughs> this is a deep, deep cut here. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty deep. Um, <laughs> uh, I thought it was uh, it was fascinating in many ways uh, that I'm not ashamed to admit. But I think what stood out mostly is watching it in the context of having recently watched Fire in Babylon, the mm-hmm. documentary about the West Indies. And because it was it was literally, it was made in 1947. The documentary was made mm-hmm. in 1947, the year that the ashes took place. Uh, and it, the extent to which is it, is it is absurd is hard to overstate. Right, I mean, it's just it's just completely laughable, uh, and so it just raised this really interesting question that I think segues to my next question, which is like, how will we look back on sports uh, that you and I are watching now, hmm. and will our like children and grandchildren look at us like out of the side of their eye, like you put up with that, mm-hmm. or you were okay with that, uh, and so that raised an interesting question, and I think it. It connects with having read an article this week um, in New York Times Magazine. It was uh, an interview with uh, several philosophers, thinkers, talking about coronavirus. And one thing stuck out as it pertains to sports in that they said what you should really plan on or what the American public should plan on is no public gatherings uh, until fall 2021. Hmm which is fascinating to think about for the sports mm-hmm. world. Uh, so it's possible to imagine the seasons carrying on, maybe starting this fall or starting this winter, uh, but probably without fans for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And so what that will mean and what that will look like. Uh, and so that alongside the question of like, how will we look back on this era in sports, maybe kind of throws a little bit of significance at this moment of, is this a moment that we will mark as a watershed in how we think about how sports relates to our society or mm. will this just be kind of this anomaly of like, well, those were a weird couple of years, but then also where our grandchildren look at us and say like, you put up with that kind of thing. Well, that was in the forefront. Too. Yeah. That's so interesting. I don't know. Um, I kind of fall in that same boat. I think that's what we're likely to see, with the possible exception being of if we see a, um, a treatment that are, that comes out that turns out to be very effective against this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. um, so that's uh, it'll be fascinating to kind of follow that. But I I think it's changing so many things in that way. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know if you got a chance to watch SNL this past weekend. I have not. I've been meaning to. Uh, uh, and it's, you know, there were parts of it that didn't work very well, but overall it was remarkably well done. Um, and there were things in it that were just really interesting. And the one that I'll point out with this particular context was for Weekend Update, um, they had like some random folks on a on the video call that were not participating, that were just there to laugh. Oh yeah, because uh, they 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 had some jokes about how sad it is to do comedy with no audience present, um, and I thought that it made it so much better to have it there. Like we need that yeah. little bit of a guide to know when we're supposed to laugh mm-hmm. at something. We need that, uh, and it'll just be. I just can't imagine the lack of energy in a stadium that's empty. Um, it makes me think about like 
you know, I don't know that I would condone this from a public health perspective, but like go play outside somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. or go like, mm-hmm. don't just go, go to a small practice court. Don't play in this massive arena if there's not going to be any fans in it. Um, I think there are ways right. to make it interesting otherwise. Right. Right. But we will see. We will see. It's a, it's yeah. a brand new world. Yep. Uh, and it'll probably be the same once we're done with it. Let's be honest here. So, <laughs> Right, that that'll be interesting to watch too. The extent to which it's just the same, and how we go about retrieving that normalcy will be significant. I feel to look back on. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot will be made bare in that process. Agreed. Yeah. Well, you want to talk about our main topic? Yeah. Do you want to take us into it? Well, I was uh, I was actually going to ask you to, since I'm so familiar with it. I want to hear your kind of explanation of it as an outside person okay i here's the thing i will say we watched a documentary called all for one which features the australian cycling team which is maybe a bit of a misnomer (laughs) in several ways uh, and can be unpacked to kind of re- reveal some things that are interesting about the cycling world. But nonetheless, it's a documentary that call, followed Orca Green Edge, which is a cycling team based in Australia, owned by Australian investors and mostly overseen by a- Australian leadership. Uh, uh, but it covers kind of their emergence on the scene of the cycling world. So kind of 2011, 2012 until I think maybe like 16, mm-hmm. 15, 16, something like that. And the documentary has all the hallmarks of a sports documentary in the sense that there are many from behind stories. And I'll go ahead and opine at the start that Many of them are extremely compelling <laughs> uh, and really convincing and really inspiring. Uh, there is also a tinge to the documentary that makes it a little bit different. One is that it's about cycling. And I think what stands out to me is that when I was on Louisville Free Public Library's video website, uh, which is kind of like um antithesis of netflix in the best of ways so like the top 10 (laughs) on the public library video website are all these just really gorgeous beautiful thoughtful (laughs) things uh that are sure to enrich your life uh and that it emerged in that space stood out to me Hmm. so when i started looking for documentaries to watch that it popped up in that space i felt to be interesting and significant and revealing of uh what it was and what was behind it uh and in some ways that held true so that it popped up in that space and that i felt about it the way i did i think like those things are connected and make sense um but I think as just a description of what the documentary is, is it, it follows the emergence of a cycling team and what it takes to be a cycling team at the professional level. Uh, and so I forget the exact number of teams, but I think there's like 18, mm-hmm. something at like the, that. At the top level, yeah. At the top, top, top level. And so within that space, if one is not highly accustomed to the cycling world, a lot of it seems weird. Um, and I would argue that I'm like 
probably more than most aware aware of what pro cycling is like and it's still all of it feels weird <laughs> um and so i think that's an interesting kind of angle to kind of come at it if you were to analyze what's significant about a documentary about orca green edge an australian cycling team um and i think i'll use that as an introduction okay. uh, there's a lot more to it but maybe that's kind of where i'll stop for now well, and I'll follow that up by asking you uh, if you enjoyed the documentary. I loved it. Okay. I absolutely loved it. Um, I cried like three times. Okay. I'm going to need to uh, know what those were. but that, uh, That's not a reason for why I loved it. I, I, I don't love something that makes me cry just because it makes me cry. I loved it because um, there was an earnestness behind it. There was an authenticity that came through. Uh, the documentary and I think because in some ways I would describe it as a pretty uh, low level production mm -hmm. that made it uh, more likable I, uh, at least for me personally I was thinking the same thing so that mm -hmm. I, so some backstory here I'm a big fan of this team largely because the main director of this film Dan Jones who you see later on in it um, wrote, did this thing called the backstage pass where they let uh, kind of those of us here get to know the cyclers, cyclists a little bit. And it turned into a really compelling thing because this team, they kind of gave them, and a big part of the story was that they gave them freedom to be themselves in some ways. Um, that it's the, I, I was struck, you know, not knowing as much about it, that the, there was, you know, the level of determination and the way they push themselves, I think often gets uh, missed in some of that lighter stuff. But man, these guys really seemed to enjoy what they were doing. Um, and the earnestness is, is, I think it's a great point. You know, I think about there's one particular portion close to the end, um, that you'll probably remember when, uh, uh, they were talking about the Froome story. Uh, do you remember this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. and it's like this, this, there's no reason for this to be in the documentary, but they kind of like whoever was writing, it was kind of like, uh, that's that inside joke I'm going to put in here. Um, yeah. And it was just like that, those kind of little touches where it's like, you know, this is not the smoothest storytelling in the world. It's not the greatest, flashiest documentary, but it is, uh, it does feel authentic in that way. Yeah. Uh, so I was going to ask you when you first started paying attention to cycling. So um, I believe, I was trying to think about this myself because I was trying to trace it back. I believe it was the, the first year I really took it seriously uh, and kind of watched the entire Tour de France was the year that um, Orca Green Edge got the yellow jersey. So the year mm. of the the bus into the stanchion, and then the year of <laughs> yeah. giving the giving the yellow jersey away. Which I mean, come on, how can you not become a fan of this team when you see somebody is leading a race, give it to their friend um, to lead for a day? It's just pretty compelling stuff. Well, why, what is what is it about that? So this is a scene in the documentary that is covered. Is in was it their first year or their second year? Uh, second or third year, Se I think. Second year, I think. Uh, they're one of their top riders uh, earned the yellow jersey, which is for uh, winning a stage of the Tour de France. Well, and no more. It's for whoever's leading the Tour de France. Who's leading? Yes, who's leading? Yeah. Um. And so to have that jersey, uh, especially for riders, as I understand it, that kind of know they're not going to win the Tour de France, 
Uh, it's an especially big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, even more so, Orca Green Edge stands out because they are kind of like mid-market mm-hmm. insofar as they're not spending as much as the top teams. And so in that way, a mid-market team getting that jersey for a period of time uh, is life-changing uh, for a lot of people that are part of that team and then especially for the writer. Uh, and the story is that Simon Guerin, is that Garin's, his name? Garin's, yeah. Garin's. Um, uh, was leading the Tour de France for a moment and purposefully handed it off to one of his teammates that he felt also deserved to be wearing the jersey. And so why is that such a big deal? So, I mean, it goes back to that, yeah, being in yellow for a day is like the accomplishment of a lifetime. So, like, some of the greatest racers ever will tell you that, you know, because they're sprinters, they'll never win the Tour de France, and so they just won the opportunity to wear it for a day or two. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of considered the accomplishment of a lifetime. But more importantly, in this case, um, the guy that he handed off to is a South African. And so he was the first African ever in the Tour de France to wear the yellow jersey. So that was a huge statement uh, in that way. Mm. Was it also that first year that you discovered your backstage pass? It was, yep. So that was kind of what cemented it for me that this is... uh, And so what is backstage pass? So backstage pass is kind of like what you'd think. Um, uh, it's a at that point uh, usually a five to seven minute video of the guys before and after the race, and usually spliced in some race footage as well. Some of the guy, the directors in the car. So um, and really, what gets you hooked is like um, you know I'm imagining one of the moments that you teared up was when Matt Heyman won Paris Roubaix. Um, yeah. And like that video is amazing because we wouldn't have gotten to see that up close of Matt Heyman saying like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And to see the, the sports directors in the car, like going nuts and the yeah. police telling them to move on, but they're just going nuts in the car uh, and yeah. ignoring everything like that. Those moments are contagious. Like you can just, we've all had those kind of moments before and to see someone else in that space is so compelling. Yeah. So I'm encountering two things here. One, I want to ask you why Perry Roubaix and Matt Hammond winning is a big deal. The second is I'm realizing that for most people, an answer to that question would maybe not be that meaningful. And what is difficult about it is we would have to explain who Matt Hammond is. Mm-hmm. We would have to probably get a little more in-depth about who and what Orca Green Edge is. We would have to get more in-depth about why backstage pass is significant in the cycling world, and we would have to get more into the cycling season and how it works, and we would have to get more into why Perry roubaix um, which this is the limit of my knowledge, like, I don't know why it is so significant and, like, the history of it and what it is or anything. So I... I guess one thing that stands out to me about watching this documentary that maybe we could take a second to kind of like unpack and I would love to hear your thoughts as I'm saying all these things is that uh, accessing cycling is difficult. Um, In some ways, it's really, really difficult and that I would say both of us have an interest in cycling because of backstage pass. Mm Mm-hmm feels really, really significant to me as we attempt to like 
have a, a maybe kind of like silent conversation about like what the hell is cycling <laughs> and why do people watch this and why do people do this insane sport um so i'll just kind of throw that all that all that out there and kind of see what you make of that yeah so i think um when i started watching this so yeah that would have been 2013 2014 i think somewhere in there um and that at that time you know we didn't have uh, at least I did not have and was not using Instagram the way that I am now. Uh, and I don't think we saw as many athletes on there as we do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Backstage Pass for me was really the introduction to let's look at these athletes as humans, which of course is super compelling to me because it's essentially what this entire podcast is about on some level if we mm-hmm. if we look at it the right way. is like looking at these people um, and that was perhaps the most compelling point of the documentary too, is trying to break down who these guys are as people as well as athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's part of what made it so compelling, but then there are also these amazing characters on there. Um, and so you get to see someone like Simon Garens, this incredible athlete and get to learn a little bit about his story. I mean, in the documentary it goes farther into like, you know, this guy was told he was never going to make it and he won two monuments in his right. career and wore the yellow jersey for a couple of days like this guy had an amazing career and he wasn't really a professional writer until much later than other folks were right. um so an incredible story there and matt Heyman, you know that's what kind of gets you is that matt Heyman, through this process you learn like that this guy you know he's ridden this race 16 times and roubaix is something that i don't even understand i don't think any of us that haven't ridden in the peloton can understand but i know that first time that you and i kind of watched the tour de france side by side mm-hmm. they had that amazing cobbled stage um yeah where uh vincenzo nibbly destroyed everybody and Lars boom won and it was raining and it was miserable and that was nothing compared to a pair roubaix but i think you were pretty captivated by that weren't you it was what got me it, it was literally if i can pinpoint it so i think we did that in Thirteen. I think we watched 2013 together. Let me see. Or maybe it was 13 or 14. Maybe I'm, it was 14. I'm looking it up. When did Nibali win the um, Tour de France? At any rate, it, it was that stage on the cobblestones and peering it with backstage pass. So this, so like, I guess here's the point I'm kind of like making, and my question is that in so many ways, cycling is really dry and inaccessible. Uh, especially for an American audience. Mm -hmm. Like you have to have something to bring you in. And what seems really interesting and significant to me and like why this documentary is compelling is that it highlights the fact that something like a behind-the-scenes video footage of a new team on the scene is what could bring people like you and I Mm -hmm. into cycling. Mm -hmm. Um, And while I think the documentary exists because – we're not the only ones that made that observation. Um, uh, it's also revealing that, uh, I don't know, these really kind of like dry, institutional, old school sports obsessed with like a right way of doing things. Um, I I don't know. I, I'm going to extend it to the farthest realm possible and just say that it's on the way out. Uh, and if cycling wants to like continue... I don't know. I, I, it makes me think that the like Matt Heyman stories need to be in the forefront. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, um, I agree. And I think that there's, that, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say 
Sky and Chris Froome winning Tour de France's isn't going to do it. No, and that's I think that uh, was the big point that you look at the two teams and Chris Froome doesn't want anything to do with this. Um, yeah, and Sky has tried to do some media, but it's not worth anything because they don't they, you know, they view very much our corporate mindset, and I think that that's that's not what we want to see in these kind of sports. And I I think about this um, uh, on two levels, kind of one being. Um, that there's uh, well, let me take a step back here real quick and just say that um, I want to give a big shout out here to Cosmo Catalano and his "How the Race Was Was Won" videos mm-hmm. because this is the other part that made cycling work for me because he would break these videos down and does still does occasionally um, in, in a way that made it accessible for me and really made me a fan of the sport because it's like uh, he um, he was never I think paid to do this but he became as an amateur person making these videos, the grant low of cycling for me, where I, my understanding of the sport and appreciation for it changed drastically due to his stuff. Mm -hmm. So big shout out there. But I do think it raises this point about like, and we've talked about baseball recently, what would happen if the angels did this and talked about Pujols and, and uh, Mike Trout and whoever else, and did this kind of thing with them. And we allowed in the dugout and like, let these guys, you know, we're not going to see them be assholes. Like we know that they can be, and we're not going to see them, you know, in their, in their worst of the worst, but just letting them be humans, I think would be so compelling and so good for that sport in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking about the corporate mindset. So a quick look found that, uh, sky, which is now, Ineos. Ineos, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so their budget is $43 million a year. Yep. Was you, you know, I mean, if, if we put that in the context of professional sports worldwide, uh, there's a lot of things that can beat that. Uh, for example, Mercedes' F1 budget for 2019 was $500 million. Um, But in a sport where there maybe isn't that much money to be made – Spending forty three million uh, kind of raises this really fascinating question about like uh, I can't imagine Sky is making a lot of money off their cycling team. Uh, that is part of like a, a larger conglomerate, which kind of uh, I guess gives credence or gives interest to these middle market teams uh, and doing it a different way. And I guess I I'm saying this is like an sort of like activist in the sport, and I have no space in the sport whatsoever but just to say that like worker green edge is just so much cooler mm-hmm. <laughs> and just so much more interesting and so much more fun and like anyone could not knowing anything about cycling could watch this documentary and be really interested in it which is quite an achievement for well, cycling it is and i think that um it speaks to on some level i think the leadership, the top leadership, because it's at the top of Orca Green Edge, which is now um, Mitchelton Scott. Um, all these teams change names mm-hmm. all the time for those that don't know. Um, that it's fascinating that Jerry Ryan was at the top and very involved as an owner, but not seemingly that involved in the decision-making process. And Shane Bannon is a general manager, but he is not the face of the organization by any means. Um, he kind of strikes me as like very much that management type where he wants to do things right, but 
doesn't need to get any attention at all. And you compare that to Dave Brailsford, who seems to not be able to avoid attention at Sky and Ineos. Um, but then the fact that they brought in Matt White, who I can't imagine was not a risky decision, but Matt White has made that program what it is. Um, and like, he is the reason that that team has that culture. I think that that's, uh, speaks volumes about the leadership to trust in him. Cause I, you know, you see his personality is not necessarily one that you'd think would thrive there, but, um, I think you couldn't, you can't argue that he has done an amazing job in that role. And who in, who in what is Matt White? So Matt White is the director sportif. He's the head person in charge of kind of strategy and leading the team essentially. So it's interesting on the, on the documentary, you see how when he first started, he made some stupid decisions, including some that got guys really quite injured in a stupid yeah. way. Um, yeah. But you now watch him and he is, uh, I would argue the best tactician in the modern Peloton that he, that team is doing more interesting things tactically than any other team out there and making the most out of the riders that they have more than anyone else. Yeah. And he brings a tone of joviality. He's a character. I mean, he's arguably the lead character in the backstage passes in some ways. Right. I, I that made that leads me to a part to um, maybe to kind of wrap it up because I feel like you and I could like have this conversation for a really long time. This is like right in our wheelhouse in a lot of ways. Um, I feel like what stuck out to me about Orca Green Edge is how they negotiated the space between owner leadership and athletes. Mm. And I think if like, I I don't know how to approach this. If I were a rider, I would want to ride for them. Mm -hmm. If I were a general manager or a strategist in cycling, I would want to work for them. And if I had billions of dollars, I would want to own a team like green edge mm-hmm. uh and so in that way they stand out it's just this kind of like top to bottom they're doing great at everything uh and it's not that they're making tons of money it's not that they're winning all these like races it's just that they're like engaging in the sport in a way that allows um allows for entertainment that doesn't feel so tainted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that feels rare in the professional sports world. It does. You know, it's, it, um, you know, I'll go back to my favorite uh, sports here in the world and talk about Tony Bennett. Um, and as a UVA sports fan, it's really easy to be a college basketball fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the same way I find that as an Oracle green edge fan, it's really interest, uh, really easy to be a cycling fan mm-hmm. but there's certainly issues i mean you know uh, neil stevens one of the main folks in this documentary left somewhat enigmatically about differences in philosophy a, a year and a half ago or so so mm-hmm. you know, you're like well what's going on with that there have been writers that have not thrived in that environment and you wonder what's going on with that um you know it's not like uh, i think we need to be clear it's not like an amazing they fixed all the wrongs in the world and that everything isn't it's perfect here, but I think it, it, it does make it really easy to be a fan uh, when you see these kind of people and you see these kinds of things happening. And I think it goes back to, um, uh, you know, just on some level enjoying 
wanting our sports not to be tainted, as you said, with that kind of corporate culture. And so mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that we don't want, we want all these teams to be mismanaged and poorly run and stuff. Like there's a reason that they go at this corporate way because it leads to success and leads to getting the most out of these riders. And we want these riders to succeed to the best of their capability. And I think what we see with, or what I saw with Oracle Green Engine, I continue to see is that they take it seriously without, taking themselves too seriously, which I think is what we hope to see right. from everybody. Right. And how grueling this poor of cycling is. I, I this love is kind that. of a final thing here. Yeah. yeah. I love that, that line in there about how there's no question that these cyclists are the toughest professional athletes in the world. I firmly believe that to be the yep. case. I do too. And terrifying. <laughs> it has to be terrifying. <laughs> The things that they do are terrifying. Um, Not to mention just like, so I am actually, I just pulled up on Strava. Uh, So Chris Froome on March 11th rode 103 miles. On March 12th, he rode 118. And then on March 14th, he rode 108. So, I mean, to that, uh, I mean, that's, so let's do time. He was on the bike on March 11th for five and a half hours. On the 12th, six and a half hours. On the 14th, six and a half hours. So that's hmm. on a bike for six to seven hours a day. I mean, that that's just like a different livelihood that like yeah. these these cyclists exist in a different realm. Well, it is. Uh, it's so fascinating. And the, the, I think we underappreciate how massive these efforts are. I mean, it... You know, I don't think any of us that haven't driven up Mount Ventoux or these mountains understand what they're really riding up in these cases. Yeah. And on the flip side, like they're, um, they just did a a stay at home short uh, version of the Tour of Flanders last week. And the, the power numbers these guys are putting out and like you can calculate you can go online and calculate your own power numbers so next time you go yeah. out and ride a bike i encourage you to try and figure that out if you have strava or some of these things they can figure it out for you but um these guys for 45 minutes averaged close to 500 watts um yeah. and it's like good grief that is massive yeah. like i a normal like i cannot get to that level maybe maybe for one pedal stroke but not for more than that and these guys are doing it for 45 straight minutes right uh it's staggering yeah. for reference if i go on a ride i'm at like average of 120 yeah. <laughs> and that's me like kill that's me all out trying to kill myself yeah <laughs> Like, yeah, I mean, a normal human can't fathom the amount of energy that is being expended on these bikes, which I don't think, I don't know if you could compare it to anything except other, like, uh, um, extreme distance sports, endurance sports. I'm sure marathoners exist in that realm, too, but maybe distance swimming. So, like, that's the only thing I think that you could compare to, like, energy output. Well, I think, and that's, you know, and then you combine that with the danger aspect of it. And I think that's what pushes it over the edge for me. It's just I like, agree. it's such a phenomenal thing. Like the, yep. the, the test of the mind of these guys is just phenomenal. Yep. I mean, it's essentially, I compare it, you know, the Tour de France, you're doing with the same physical stresses in some ways that, you know, ultra, an ultra marathon or something like that would put you through. But then you're also going down a hill at, 
70 miles an hour and could die if you screw up. It's There's nothing else like it in the world. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I hope we get to see some cycling here soon. Um, yeah, please. that would be great. Coronavirus uh, people, let us let us have that. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> not going to happen, but um, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> we can't bake any more bread. We're getting there. That's the least of the problems of many people. So, um, I did. Uh, I had a friend who told me that uh, people are running out of yeast in stores because so many folks mm-hmm. are baking bread at this point. Mm, right. Right. <laughs> yep. Oh my word. Well, cool. Well, like I said, I feel like we barely scratched the surface of the significance of cycling. So I, I would be willing to kind of like put it on the burner and say. Maybe we can find another doc to kind of get into it a little bit more. Agreed. And what I will do uh, in the notes for this is put uh, a few of the best backstage passes that you can pay attention to uh, yeah. uh, for That'd folks that are interested and uh, stuff. So, yeah, this to is get perfect. into it. Yeah. 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 So. That's a great point. All right. Man. Well. Thanks for bearing with us as uh, as we're in our evening tired mind state here. I, uh, we took it, we looked at several different documentaries. I wanted something that was rather uplifting, and so I think we got that, uh, and would recommend all for one to anyone interested. But uh, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this, and uh, shout out to Orca Green Edge for doing things the way that we wish other folks would do things. We definitely need to link them on this episode. I agree. Yes. Yeah, I bet they would dig it. <laughs> hey, guys, if you got nothing else to do right now, Matt White, if you got nothing going on right now, we would love to have you on the podcast. We would love to talk to you. <laughs> we need to put that at the top. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, man. Thanks, Carl. And y'all have a good week. Bye.